0: Before we get started in our lesson, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship to God. That is usually referred to by the term fellowship. Sometimes we talk about being in fellowship, but actually the scriptures talk about enjoying fellowship, fellowship being a state of relationship with God. When we sin, that relationship is, uh, is broken. Our eternal relationship is not just our temporal relationship our moment-by-moment rapport with God. And so we are to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer. This gives each individual the chance to make sure that they are ready to study the Word, uh, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, Uh, These are various commands that Scripture uh, has for us because it is ultimately God the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand his word, stores the doctrines from Scripture in our soul, and enables us to walk the Christian life. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Your word sheds light upon our thinking. It is in your light that we walk. It's your light that illumines our path. It's your light that enables us to understand and properly appreciate the circumstances of life. It gives us perspective, teaches us priorities and values, and it is your word that the Holy Spirit uses to strengthen us, to stabilize us, and to mature us in our relationship with you, preparing us for our future uh, time when we return with the Lord Jesus Christ, when he establishes his kingdom on the earth, that we might rule and reign with him forever. Now, Father, we pray that we might be challenged and encouraged today as we study your word, as we continue our study in First Thessalonians, and that God the Holy Spirit will use this to edify us, strengthen us, and build us up in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We've been studying through First Thessalonians. We've looked at the overview of this epistle, and last time we covered basic introductory concepts related to the epistle. Uh, today, what I want to do is spend time in the opening salutation, the opening address, and begin our exposition of First Thessalonians. Now the focal point today will come out of the main verb of the first uh, four verses, uh, verses two, three, four, and five. In the Greek, are one verse actually, and the focal points, the main verb, we give thanks. Now this is a, a addressed to the church in Thessalonica, uh, known as. Uh, that's Thessaloniki in the Greek in the ancient world, Salonika in the modern world. It's located in the uh, province, Roman province of Macedonia or Macedonia. It's the area that's on the map that is circled. This was where Paul went on his second missionary journey. He originally left from down in what is now central Turkey, the southern part, where he revisited churches he had established on his first journey. Churches in Lystra, Iconium, Derby, Pisidian, Antioch. And then he headed, uh, to the northwest. He was prevented by the Holy Spirit from going into either the province of Asia, which was in the western part of Turkey, or going north or east into either uh, northern Galatia or Bithynia and Pontus. The Holy Spirit was in some way leading him, directing him, where he ends up on the coast of the Aegean Sea at Troas, not located just a few miles from ancient Troy. It was there at Troas that God the Holy Spirit uh, enabled a vision for the Apostle Paul directing him to Macedonia. A man appeared to him in a vision saying requesting him to come over to Macedonia. At that point, Paul is going to move from Asia across the continent to Europe. The gospel will be going to Europe. He takes a ship from Troas, bypasses Samothrace, goes to Neapolis, the seaport, then to uh, uh, Philippi or Philippi, and then traveling the Ignatian Way, the main east-west a uh, highway travel route the roman highway he goes from uh, philippi through amphipolis and apollonia to uh, thessalonica he has to leave thessalonica after a few months scholars as i pointed out debate the length of that time some will go as as far as to say he was only there for those 3 sabbaths mentioned in first are uh, mentioned in acts chapter 17 Others believe that he was there for as perhaps as long as five or six months. I believe he was probably there uh, at least three months, maybe five months, but it was not as short of time as those first three weeks mentioned in Acts 17. There's nothing in Acts 17 that indicates that that is the extent of the time spent in Thessaloniki. And so he, uh, from there he had to leave because of persecution, opposition, and he headed to Varia, or Berea as it's pronounced in English, but at Varia, again, he meets in a, a synagogue with the Jews. From Varia he goes to Athens and then to Corinth. By the time he gets to Corinth, he's left Timothy and, and Silas behind, and they have returned to uh, Thessalonica in order to check out Uh, how the believers there are doing, and then they returned and reconnected with Paul in Corinth and gave him a report on the congregation at Thessalonica and brought with them some questions, some issues that had uh, arisen during the time since Paul had been there, and Paul is going to address those in this epistle. So he writes it sometime in the mid to late spring of, of AD 51 from Corinth, addressing the the issues there back in Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was a major city, as I pointed out, a population of about 200,000, and is the capital of the province of uh, Macedonia. And here is an ancient coin that's been discovered that has a slogan on it, uh, Macedonia uh, Protes, uh, Macedonia First, this shows the prominence of of Macedonia. Again, we have another map here showing the location of Thessalonica on the Thermic Gulf, which it was a second major seaport for Greece, the first being Corinth, uh second was Thessalonica, and the third major seaport on the Aegean was Ephesus on the other side of the of the Aegean. We looked at this chart, which is going to be made available for everybody. This is a chart from the Through the Bible uh, uh, commentary, which is just a basic collection of surveys on each of the books of the New Testament. And they have some good, charge, uh, good charts. It's a good place to start, and we're just going to tweak it a little bit as we go along uh, always in Bible study, you start off with your overview of a book, you then come back to uh, the details of the text, and as you study in the details of the text, your, your initial impressions and concepts and ideas are going to change, and you go back and you tweak your original uh, assumptions and your original outline sometimes. And so this just gives us a nice chart that gives us a little bit of an overview of the of the epistle. Now, the epistle begins in verse 1, typical of most uh, introductions in ancient letters. It reads, "...Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Now this is pretty much represents a, a standard form of salutation in most epistles in the ancient world, not just in the first century AD, but also going back for several hundred years. We have uh, a number of examples of this, and one that we have from the Old Testament is found in Ezra chapter 7 verse 12 where Ezra has received correspondence from Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And that begins with this statement, Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra the priest, greetings. So this was a standard form of salutation. In this this opening line, we see mention of Paul and his two companions they both had been with him in Thessalonica, and then he had sent Silas and Timothy back to Thessalonica, so they are well known to the congregation. So he includes them in the opening uh, salutation. Uh, Paul, of course, refers to the Apostle Paul, originally born Saul of Tarsus. His salvation is recorded in Acts chapter 9. He was raised to be a leader among the Pharisees. He was probably one of the most brilliant rabbinical students of his generation. He was trained in Jerusalem at the school of Gamaliel, one of the foremost rabbis of that period in uh, the history of the development of Judaism as such he was more zealous paul says in philippians chapter 3 than all of his uh, all of his brethren all of those who were in the yeshiva with him studying under gamaliel and when this new sect of the christians those who were following jesus of nazareth came along this incensed paul this tells us a little bit about his his uh, sin nature that he had a strong tendency towards arrogance towards legalism and towards hostility to anyone who took a view opposite from his own. And so he began to seek out to persecute uh, Christians. He understood as an unbeliever the threat that Christianity brought to Judaism because in Christianity was the claim that the Messiah had come. This would make, mean that there was a radical shift in God's plan and purposes for Israel. It would indicate that rabbinic theology, especially that of the Pharisees, was completely wrong. And the Apostle Paul, or at the time Saul of Tarsus, who had given his life to a study of the doctrines of the, of the Pharisees, would have to admit that all that he believed, all that he held, was completely wrong. He would have gone to Jerusalem when he was uh, 13, around the time of his bar mitzvah, to have begun studies there in the law. He may have gone earlier, we're not sure. But now uh, at least 10 years, maybe 15 years, have gone by since then. So he is fully invested in the theology, the belief system of the Pharisees. And he describes himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees in Philippians chapter 3 verses 3 and 4 as to the law more zealous than anyone else. And then when he had received permission and he had received a mandate, from the uh, Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to persecute and arrest members of the way, as it was called in the early stages of Acts. Uh, he left with an entourage and some guards to go to D- uh, Damascus and there to arrest Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem. On the way, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen, resurrected uh, Lord Jesus Christ is one of his, uh, one of only two or three post-ascension appearances of Christ. We have one to Paul, one later on to the Apostle John. Uh, these are limited for specific, uh, purposes related to, uh, the establishment of the church at the very beginning as well as final, uh, the final, uh, com- composition of the canon of scripture. And so he appears to Paul, Uh says, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul falls flat on his face. He's blinded by the brilliant light that surrounded the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he uh, is lying there, the Lord Jesus Christ commissions him. Uh, to be an apostle and gives him a mission to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Tells him to go on to Damascus and after three days to seek out Ananias, a prophet who would be, uh, uh, who would be told and informed by the Lord Jesus Christ to, uh, heal Paul of his blindness. And so it was through Ananias that Paul's sight was, was restored. And then we know that there was a period of, uh, Uh, Two or three years are at the beginning where there's some reevaluation of his theology and doctrine, his his reorientation to the Old Testament. Then he's sort of put on the back burner for about 14 years in Tarsus before he comes out uh, retrieved by Barnabas and brought to the church at Antioch. And it was from that uh, return to the church of Antioch and his ministry there that his uh, formal ministry as an apostle began. He went on his first missionary journey, as I mentioned earlier, with Barnabas and Barnabas' nephew, John Mark, as his traveling companions. They returned from the first missionary journey. Then, because of the fact that there was such a huge response from the Gentiles on that journey, creating an issue in the early church as to what do we do with all these goi that are now coming into the church. There there was a council held in Jerusalem in order to address the issue of the Gentiles. What is expected of Gentiles? Are they they required to obey the law? Are they supposed to be kosher? Are they supposed to be observant of the law? All of these questions came up, especially because you had one segment of the uh, Jewish church the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, they came from a Pharisaical background like Paul who believed that circumcision was still required for salvation. This was a important theological issue. That's resolved at what was called the Council uh, in Jerusalem. That's covered in Acts chapter uh, 15, and at that time they decide that no, circumcision is not required. They understand the principle of grace and salvation. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Then after that first journey, when uh, uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas and Silas is accompanying them, uh, they return to the church in Antioch uh, with the message, the, the uh Uh, mandate from the uh, Jerusalem council not to put a burden upon Gentile believers, not to require circumcision, but only to ask of them that they uh, follow certain uh, social regulations that would uh, not hinder fellowship with, uh, with observant Jewish believers. When they return to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are going to set out on a second journey. Barnabas insists upon taking John Mark with him, Paul says no, he's adamant about it. They uh, separate at that point, friendly, they, there's never any hostility there. Barnabas takes John Mark with him and goes uh, back to Cyprus in order to uh, establish the churches there and check on the ones that had already established and established new churches there. And Paul selects Silas. Uh, who has a Latin form of his name, Sylvanus. He selects Silas, Silas being the Lat, uh, or excuse me, the Aramaic form of his name, selects Silas to be his traveling companion. And so he and Silas leave and they head for, uh, the churches he visited in southern Galatia initially with Lister Iconium and Derby. And it is there that he finds Timothy, who now has uh, grown as a believer, has a solid reputation among the uh, the Christians in the community as well as in the Jewish community, and so Paul has him uh, circumcised because he was from a Jewish mother, Gentile father, but he had not been circumcised, and so that was a an area of tension with the church there. And so then they headed out on their journey. So that informs us as to who these three people are, at the beginning of this epistle, Paul, the apostle, and then two associates, his, his entourage men he is training to be leaders in local churches to teach the word to evangelize, Silas and Timothy. We'll hear much more of both of them. Silas, Silvanus, is also known to us as the one who wrote, the scribe who wrote, uh, Peter's first epistle, and so Silas is an v- extremely prominent figure in the early church. Timothy, of course, is very close to Paul, very dear to him. Uh, not only is Timothy mentioned numerous times in the uh, in the New Testament, but there are two epistles that are addressed to him as a young pastor, probably in his mid thirties, as a young pastor in Ephesus, the first and second Timothy. So. We have the opening greeting indicating the authors of the epistle, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. Then we have the mention of those to whom uh, the epistle is addressed. And it is addressed to the church, the ecclesia, the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the phraseology that we have here, uh, indicates, uh, two things. The, the deity, uh, and the focus on God the Father and the designation of the first person of the Trinity as the Father brings with it uh, certain uh, concepts God the Father he's the one uh, first person of the Trinity the one who is ultimately in authority within the Trinity there is an authority structure it's not based on any idea of superiority between the members of the Trinity the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in deity N- none is superior to the other they are equally omniscient omnipotent and omnipresent omnipresent They are equally sovereign, righteous, holy, and love. Uh, They are all equally immutable, and they are all uh, voracious or true. Uh, Faithful and true is the title given to the Lord Jesus Christ upon his return at the end of the tribulation period, but that. Appellation would apply to all three members of the Trinity. We, When describing the Trinity, we say that they are co-equal. That means that in terms of their essence, uh, they are the same. There's no distinction between them in terms of their essence. However, in terms of their function, uh, sometimes referred to as the economic Trinity, the function of the Trinity, there's a distinction. The Father is the authority and he is the one who sent the Son, and the Son comes proceeds from the Father, and then the Holy Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son. So there is an hierarchy there of authority which has to do with the fulfillment of the mission of God's plan. So the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this indicates the unity of the church, and that ultimately they have a real, a spiritual reality that goes beyond their physical existence. Now, when we talk about the church or the ecclesia, there's some different concepts that are used at times. There's the term universal church, which refers to all pe- everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who has been regenerate, everyone who has been justified throughout all of the ages, from the day of Pentecost in A.D. 30 all the way up through the rapture of the church, these are all members of the universal church. We are all members of the body of Christ, and that is an invisible organism of the the body of Christ. Then we have another term that we use called the local church, that is the local expression of the body of Christ. And that's like West Houston Bible Church or Grace Bible Church or Pine Valley Bible Church or Second Baptist or First Baptist or First Methodist or any of these other churches are local expressions of the universal body of Christ. Now, another term that we use is the... uh, Sometimes you have the term the visible church," which would be the local church and the invisible church, which is the universal church. At other times you have uh, expressions such as the the local church, which includes uh, those who are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it may include some who are not yet saved. There may be children, there may be relatives, there may be friends, there may be some new people that come to the church that have never heard the gospel before, and so they are they may even get to a point because of policies in some congregations where they are members of a local church, but they are not members of the universal church. They've never put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. So these are different ways in which we talk about the church. A local church may be comprised of believers and unbelievers. The local church is an expression of the universal body of Christ, but only those members of a local church who are believers in Jesus Christ are also members of the universal church. Salvation is based on a simple concept, faith alone in Christ alone. That means that it's faith alone. It's not faith plus baptism, faith plus church membership faith plus uh, observance of any particular kind of ritual. It is simply faith alone, believing that by trusting, trust by itself in Jesus Christ alone, not Christ in the church, not Christ and doing good works, not Christ in ritual, but Christ alone, that that is all that is necessary for salvation. And so that is is the concept of the church. So Paul is addressing this to the local church, that is the local assembly of believers in Thessalonica, who were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father references the first person of the Trinity, and the phrase Lord Jesus Christ is sort of the full nomenclature of the second person of the Trinity. The term Lord refers to his deity, that he is one with God the Father in terms of his deity. The name Jesus is a Hebrew word, uh, Yeshua, which is a form of Joshua. And it comes from a Hebrew verb, yasha, indicating salvation, to save, to deliver. And so it indi- his name means something. It's not just a, a, not just nomenclature. It's not just a tag. It means something that his mission was to be the savior of his people. The third part of his name, Christ, is from the Latin, I'm excuse me, the Greek word Christos from the verb krio, meaning to anoint. And this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word mashiach, which means also to anoint. It indicates someone who has been anointed or appointed to a particular position. And so you have this phrase Mashiach or Masha to, to anoint uh, applied to people such as Lucifer, the cherub, the anointed cherub who covers in Ezekiel chapter 28, a title for uh, Lucifer before his fall. You also have have it applied to Cyrus in the Old Testament because God had appointed him to a mission to release the Jews from captivity and allow them to return back to the land that God had given them. And this occurred in 538 uh, B.C. So these two names indicate that, that the identity of a local church, the identity of West Houston Bible Church, the identity of the believers here is that we are in God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to the salutation part of this uh, uh, of the opening, and this shows how the apostle Paul has taken a standard cultural form of address, and it has been transformed just a little bit in order to represent a doctrinal or theological truth, rather than uh, following the normal custom of of uh, a Greek greeting which would be the word karein uh, from uh uh, ka, uh uh karis meaning grace and the verb the infinitive form karein would mean greetings he replaces it with the simple noun form karis, grace and then he adds to that uh, a typical Jewish greeting peace, which in Hebrew would be shalom, peace or wellness or wholeness. It takes on a distinctively theological uh, theological sense in that we must first be recipients of God's grace before we can experience peace with God. We must first accept God's gracious gift of salvation, and only after we have been regenerate regenerated only after we've been justified do we experience that peace with God. Peace with God relates to two aspects, as we've studied many times. One is reconciliation, and the other is our ongoing fellowship with God. So we have these two elements brought together in a sophisticated way by the Apostle Paul where he embeds a reminder in the very salutation of these epistles uh, to his audience indicating uh, that God's grace and peace to them, that it comes from God, that means that it is uh, has its source uh, in God and is then uh, given to us grace uh, and peace to you uh, from uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this gives us a a nuance there. Now, what you should note in your Bibles is that this last phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is omitted in some of the Older manuscripts, some of the older manuscripts, and thus in what's referred to as the Nesla aland or the UBS Greek text, it's not included. However, it is found, uh, in the majority text. And that majority text refers to another, uh, another form of the Greek testament that is built on a different assumption of how to handle, uh, these uh, differences between some of the ancient manuscripts. And I tend to go with the majority text most of the time, and so I believe that this is a the formal greeting here, grace to you and peace uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that phrase, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not found in some of the older manuscripts. Then we come to uh, the next part of the op- opening section which is the beginning of the uh, of the prayer and we'll just look at the first uh three verses of this prayer verses 2 uh, 3 and 4 uh we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. I note that it's interesting that uh, this is the third reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and God as in the first person of the Trinity God as Father. I think that's important to note because perhaps this is something that Paul had to drill home to the Thessalonians in terms of the Full deity of Jesus Christ and His relationship to the Father, and then verse four, knowing beloved brethren, your election by God. Now we're not going to get into verse verses two or I mean, excuse me, verses three or four in this opening uh, lesson. We're going to focus just on the uh, uh, initial statement uh, by the Apostle Paul. He says, "We give thanks to God always for you all." making mention of you in our prayers. A couple of important doctrines are embedded within this opening statement. One is related to gratitude, which we're going to focus on in this lesson, and the other is related to prayer and the importance and priority of prayer and how we should pray. Anytime we see these opening sections, in Paul's epistles where he is giving a prayer or describing what he, how he prays for the congregation, we should take note of that because this gives us an example of the way in which we should pray and the kinds of things we should be praying for. It was also typical in the opening salutation of most most letters in the ancient world to make some sort of statement regarding thankfulness and thankfulness to, to the gods. We have one example from a third century AD letter. Uh, it starts off with the greeting Tobias to Apollonius. Greeting. This would be Karain in the Greek, similar to Cairo. But remember, as I said, Paul changes the meaning to emphasize a the theological truth. In this illustration, uh, we have the statement: "If you are well, and if all your affairs and everything else is proceeding according to your will, many thanks to the gods." So, this is a, a typical way in which uh, the ancient uh, the letters in the ancient world were addressed. But Paul changes the convention a little bit so that he can conform the cultural conventions to a biblical pattern that emphasizes eternal truths uh, related to, to God. So in verse two, we read that we give thanks. This is the main verb. As I pointed out earlier, verses two, three, four, and five are actually one sentence in the original Greek. But most of this opening section, uh, these, this opening sentence is composed of dependent clauses, relative clauses, uh, causal clauses, explanatory clauses. The main verb gives us the main cl- independent clause. We give thanks to God always for your will. Everything else is secondary to that idea. So the first thing we need to address is this opening principle of gratitude toward God for all that He has given us. This opening part relates to the verb Ev Evcaristeo ev in the Greek. It's uh, basic grammar is it's a present active indicative, uh, first person plural. First person plural means it should be translated as a we. The present active indicative tells us that it has a He's talking about something that's going on in present time, and there are different nuances to the present tense. It can be a long continuous action, or it can be expressed as a little bit narrower continuous action, or it could even be a very narrow focus talking about something that's being done Right now, you can 't tell that from the grammar that 's supplied by the context, but this would indicate that, from all that Paul says and what we read in his other epistles, that this is a standard operating procedure uh, from paul that it's something he does on a daily basis here 's the principle: we should have a daily time of prayer, a time when we can set it aside without interruption. To focus on God, we send out a prayer list via email every week that is uh, updated. Sandy sends that out each week, and so you can go through that. You can subdivide it. It's quite long. You can pray for one section at a time. Uh, you don't have to sit down and pray through the whole list every day. You can even subdivide some of the sections so that, for example, if on Mondays you're going to pray for those who need um who are ill on that, that part of the page, that's sometimes a rather lengthy section. You can subdivide that into, let's say, four sections. So the first Monday of the month you cover the first uh eight or nine names the second Monday of the month, the next uh, eight or nine names, and so on. You can do the same thing with the military part of the prayer list, the pastor, the missionaries, uh, and other elements like that, and subdivide it. But prayer should be an uh, important daily discipline in the life of every single believer. It is something that should continuously characterize us, not just some sort of rote action, but something that, is a foundation for our ongoing communication with God. At the end of this epistle, Paul is going to make the statement to the Thessalonians that they should pray leptos pray without ceasing, the sense that it should be a habitual action uh, in their life. And so this present tense here is probably a uh, what's called a continuous present, something that goes on throughout a long period of time, and it could also be subdivided into another uh, form that is sometimes mentioned called a customary present. This is something that Paul customarily does. It's a habit that he's cultivated in his spiritual life. The basic meaning of the word is to give Thanks, to be grateful for something. It's a compound word. The EU prefix usually mentions something that is done well. It's going to make some kind of statement about something good. For example, uh, we have another English word that comes from a Greek word, uh, eulogy. Comes from the Greek word eulogia. A uh, uh, logos is the basic word for for a word or a thought or an idea or a statement. Uh, logia, therefore, related to a statement. Uh, eu means something positive, pleasing, beneficial. So it's a pleasing statement. So a eulogy, therefore, comes to me a pleasing statement about somebody in the context of uh, of a funeral. So here we have eu, something well, something said positive, and then the root is charis, the word for grace. So evcharisteo is a word meaning to be gr- grateful or thankful for something, and it's related to the concept of, of grace. And uh, as Paul begins this opening, he's reminding them of his gratitude to God for all that they are. This expresses something related to his personal concern for them. It's a an intimate statement towards the recipients of the letter and also expresses his pastoral concern for the congregation in Thessalonica. He's concerned about their well-being and their spiritual growth. A second thing we learn from this is it expresses in a prayer, in his opening prayer, a divine viewpoint on the priorities of prayer. Notice he begins, we're thankful to God for you all on every mention of you. Third thing is within these prayers, Paul uh, gives us an indication of the kind of priorities we should have in our spiritual life. The things that Paul prays for to be present in our life, the things that he's thankful for. This tells us the kinds of things that we should be focusing on in life. And so it encourages the recipient of the letter to pursue the goals that Paul is praying for in the letter. If somebody comes up to you and says, I'm really praying that you will do well in school, that's sort of a motivation to do well. You know that a lot of people are praying for you to do something. Uh, to accomplish something, uh, it, it encourages you. It strengthens you because you know people are out there supporting you. But it also sort of motivates us to to do well uh, in the pursuit of that area. And so, and then the fourth thing that we see in these opening prayers is that they often summarize and foreshadow basic themes in the epistle. And so when we get into the main part of this, we'll see some of those ideas expressed in this opening prayer. But the beginning, uh, focusing on that verb, we give thanks, uh, I want to spend some time talking about this issue of gratitude, of what the Bible teaches about gratitude. When we use the word doctrine, we're using it in a in a way that is not as common today as it once was. Doctrine simply means teaching. So it's the teaching of gratitude, the biblical instruction related to gratitude. That's a way to understand this. All we mean by Bible doctrine is what the Bible teaches. If doctrine is instruction, let's put connect the dots here on another word, The word that is used usually to describe the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, the beginning of the Old Testament, is the Hebrew word Torah, which we often think of in the limited, restricted sense as the law. But the word Torah basically means instruction from God as to how to live. So Torah is basically the Old Testament version of doctrine. And doctrine is the New Testament version of the Old Testament concept of Torah. It's the instruction of God, and God gives us various instructions about gratitude, that gratitude is something that should be a part of the makeup of the individual's life. Now, some people, apart from their regenerate status, have attended, people have different strengths and weaknesses, and some people can be a little more grateful in their uh, normal uh, pre salvation state and some people can be less so that man there's there are a lot of different ways in which we're impacted by our sin nature some people are more self absorbed than others. Gratitude is really an issue of self-absorption. Your gratitude barometer or your gratitude gauge uh, says a lot about the level of self-absorption in, in your life. So there's a direct relation there. Well, as we get started, I think, too, this is a problem that we're seeing more and more in our culture. We are the most narcissistic culture. And narcissism is just another way of saying self-absorbed, conceited, uh, focused on your own self-will. And, and all you can think about is how something affects you and something is going to impact you and something is is uh, impacting your life. And rather than being grateful to people, you're just focused immediately on yourself. And when the more people are self-absorbed, the less grateful they are. And they're too, they're in a big hurry in life, everything's all about them, and they're not truly grateful. And we have a surface gratitude of good manners, where we often say thank you, but, but it's just perfunctory, rather than a true attitude of the soul that is profoundly thankful for everything that we have in life. And this is directly related, as we'll see, to not only self-absorption, but also arrogance. So let's start off by understanding the term. The term gratitude comes from uh, a Latin word, uh, gratitudinum, which means thankfulness, and is ultimately based on the Latin word gratus, G-R-A-T-U-S, which means thankful or pleasing. Gratus is a close cognate, to the Latin word gratia, which is usually translated uh, grace, and so grace is a is directly related to gratitude. The more grace-oriented we are, which involves humility, the more we're going to have a capacity for gratitude. Gratitude is related, therefore, to humility and is directly antithetical to uh, to arrogance. Another thing that comes out of this is related to uh, another cognate of uh, gratia is it focuses on the idea of praise. And so when we praise God, we are expressing gratitude to him. That's why we have various uh, forms of the psalms that are called praise psalms. And one category of praise psalms are uh, thanksgiving psalms. And these express the thankfulness of the writer of the hymn, the writer of the psalm, toward God. So these ideas all relate. Praise, gratitude, grace, all are part of what we uh, sometimes speak of as simply grace orientation. So there's a direct correlation between your gratitude and your grace orientation. People that are less gracious, less grace oriented, um, are 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 less grateful. People who are more grateful have a corresponding. Uh, increase in their genuine humility, as well as their uh, grace orientation. So how do we define gratitude? Gratitude is uh, expressed as appreciation for something someone has done, acknowledgement of what they have done, appreciativeness, gratefulness, recognition of what they've done, and thankfulness. Failure to be grateful is a result of arrogance. It uh, uh, comes out of a self-seeking uh, attitude and self-absorption. The idea that is often deeply held but not really exposed is that we get something, we're just, well, we deserve that. It's an attitude of entitlement. And one of the dangers that we're seeing develop in our culture is the more the government gives and the more we increase government programs of of welfare, of benevolence, of health care, whatever it may be, the more people are given things without working for them, the more they develop an attitude of entitlement. What this breeds is self-absorption. It increases it, rather. It doesn't begin it. It increases that self-absorption so that we already have a problem with the sin nature of being self-absorbed and being arrogant. And then this is fed by a federal government welfare machine which instead of truly helping people does just the opposite, it destroys them. Once we reach a critical mass of the population that no longer uh, operates on humility but is functioning on the arrogance of entitlement, then the country will absolutely implode. This will happen in families, you'll see it happen in corporations or companies, you, in any group our social network. By social network, I'm not restricting business. Any network of people uh, where you allow an entitlement mentality to develop, it will lead to a an implosion eventually because it just feeds this this uh, carnivorous, arrogant creature in, inside of us. And so, entitlement mentality. There's just the opposite of gratitude. And if you want to destroy a country, develop an entitlement generation. And that is exactly what we have done with these various social programs that have come out of Washington, D.C. Gratitude uh, is foundational to, to health in a society, and gratitude only functions in relation to uh, humility. Romans 1.21 gives us an insight into this, that uh, in terms of the general orientation of the majority of human beings, they know God exists, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, Romans 1.20. But even though, Paul says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Notice the correlation here between being thankful and recognizing the authority of God in a person's life. If you don't recognize the authority of God, then you're not going to be thankful. And that doesn't mean that we're thankful to God for giving us handouts through the federal government uh, in any way, shape, or form. The Bible doesn't uh, support that. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul says, If you don't work, you don't eat. It's very clear this emphasis on personal responsibility for taking care of oneself. Uh, the Bible is not a supporter of these large, largest programs uh, that we see coming from federal government. It is a believer in personal, individual charity, but not programmatic charity that is simply a, a form of, of socialism. So in Romans one twenty one, this is connected to... Uh, religious belief that an ungrateful culture is an atheistic culture. It is an agnostic culture. It is a culture that is that it does not humble itself uh, to God. And the result is that they become futile in their speculations. That means their thinking, their thought systems become all convoluted, and they can't accomplish whatever it is that they think they're going to accomplish because they're using wrong tools, wrong uh, methodology, And this goes to a basic heart problem. Heart here stands for the mind because their foolish heart was darkened. It, as a result of the rejection of God, the heart is darkened. They can't think in terms of light and in terms of truth. He goes on to say, professing to be wise, they become fools. And so this is, this characterizes our culture and much of, a, of the world's culture, much of Western civilization now in a post-Christian environment and the United States in our post-Christian environment, we're breeding narcissism, we're breeding arrogance, we're breeding, uh, self-absorption and narcissism, and and it's going to lead to complete collapse of the nation. Now, the third point that I want to emphasize is that gratitude, therefore, is something that is directly related to grace orientation. Uh, it, it, it's, they, they, they balance each other. So if you want to be a grateful person, you really have to come to grips with grace. And and some of the uh, things that that um, are very difficult for many people to do is to accept a gift. I know a lot of people who love to help people. But if you can't receive help, if you can't accept help without thinking you have to do something in return. Now, in our culture, we have this idea of good manners, that if somebody does something for us, we have to do something in return. That's not necessarily grace orientation. Grace orientation understands that there are times when uh, we don't do anything for it. It's just a gift and just to accept it. That's humility. If you can't accept a gift then you're not ever going to make it very far. One of my favorite stories goes back many, many years to a time when uh, George Meisinger, the president of Chafer Seminary, was a seminary student and didn't have two nickels to rub together or two pennies at the time. Penny was worth something back then. And uh, he was in Houston uh, spending his summer at Baraka Church, and he was doing his pastoral internship and pastor theme was going on vacation for a couple of weeks, uh, with the family, had them all piled up in the station wagon, ready to take off for Arizona. And, uh, George and his wife, Sandy, were going to be house sitting for, uh, pastor theme's house for those two weeks. And as, uh, uh, Bob went out to the car, he turned around and he came back to George, reaches in his pocket, and George says he pulled out this big round wad of $100 bills. And um, back, that was a lot of money back in those days. And people didn't live on credit cards. You didn't go to uh, the gas station and pull up and just swipe your Visa or MasterCard and fill up the tank. They didn't have Visa and MasterCards. And a lot of business was done on a cash basis back then. But anyway... Bob peeled off about $500 bills and gave them to George. And George said, no, 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 I can't, I can't accept that. I can't accept that. And steely-eyed Bob Theme looked at George right in the eye and said, George, if you don't learn how to accept a gift, you will never make it as a pastor. Just a great illustration of the importance of grace orientation. Gratitude, therefore, is related to understanding grace and your Gratitude tells, uh, says a lot about your ultimate orientation, uh, to grace. As such, therefore, grace orientation and gratitude fits into grace orientation, which is what I call a stress buster. How to handle the problems of life through these ten spiritual skills are stress busters that I've identified. We'll look at those in a minute. These are skills that, that, that basically ten skills summarize a range of spiritual uh, disciplines that we must cultivate in order to advance in terms of our spiritual maturity. Sometimes they're referred to as problem solving devices because, in the sense of a problem, a problem in a military sense is any time we reach a decision point, we have to go with option A or option B. That's a problem. It's like solving a math problem. It's just reaching a solution, not a problem in the sense of a difficulty, but a problem in terms of working through a series of of thought progressions to reach a decision and move out in a certain direction. So grace orientation is the fourth uh, stress buster or spiritual skill, and it begins by understanding that everything we are and everything we have comes from God. God that we deserve nothing, and there's nothing about us that impresses God. And to go through life and realize that everything you have is just a gift of God, it really doesn't have anything to do with you. Now, you may say, well, I worked hard. I made great grades. I, I, I achieved. Well, that's great, and and, and we're, we're glad that you did, and we encourage you and congratulate you on that. But there are a lot of people who have made really good grades And have not life has not done thing has not turned out well for them. They have not had great jobs. They have not had great families. They may have done a lot of right things, but things just didn't work out. So hard work, uh, a lot of talent, a lot of ability is not necessarily the key to to success. And I'm not diminishing that, but but there are a lot of people who've worked hard, achieved a lot, but things just haven't. That haven't happened for them. And there are a lot of people who are losers. They haven't studied, they've cheated, they've lied, they've always, uh, had success on somebody else's back, and they seem to have done well. Okay? So ultimately, what, what, if you've done well, it's because God has blessed you. And now sometimes God allows the wicked to prosper, but eventually they will collapse under the weight of their own, uh, under the weight of their own judgment. So we have to understand that everything we are and everything we have is a gift from God and to be grateful for every little thing uh, because it comes from God. Now, at this point I'm going to stop because at this point I want to go into the stress busters of spiritual skills. That's going to take some time so we'll stop here. We'll come back and start with this third point again in the next lesson, and work our way uh, through that in preparation for our understanding of gratitude. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through this doctrine, this important teaching and instruction in our life that we might uh, truly manifest a genuine humility that comes from our orientation to you, our orientation to grace and that, Father, that as part of our grace orientation, we might be a genuine uh, light and example to others, and that your grace in our life might be manifested toward others. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.